in some way. So anyway, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And you'll recall last week we dealt with the parable of the unjust steward, which we said was the hardest parable in the Bible to interpret because Jesus says in chapter 16 and verse 9 that we are to use unrighteous or ungodly mammon, meaning money, to make friends. We're to use the coinage of this age, the one that has George Washington's picture on it, to make friends. So when the money runs out and the money fails, they will welcome us into our eternal reward. They will welcome us into the kingdom. And it's not that we can buy our way into the kingdom. We don't purchase salvation. But the way we use our money is reflective of whether we are Christian or not. How do we use this money that's running out? Millions and billions have run out in the past couple months. How do we use that money? If we would have used it months ago for the kingdom of God, we would have had a lot to use. We have a lot less to use right now. So you need to use it before it runs out. And it will run out. It'll run out for you when you die. And then you'll need to have somebody who welcomes you into the kingdom. And the people who welcome you into the kingdom, Jesus says, are those that you helped with that unrighteous man. It's a very strange message, isn't it? And then last week I mentioned the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And uh, we jumped ahead, but we need to, I want to look at that in depth this week, but we need to go from verses 10 through 18 before we get there. Okay? So quickly let me run through. Uh, verses 10 through 18, and then we will go into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, in light of what Jesus said, use money to make friends so they can invite you into heaven or into the kingdom. He says in verse 10, and this is sort of like a proverb, a proverbial saying, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust, unfair with the least, is unjust also with the much. Therefore, if you have been faithful with unrighteous mammon, that's the least. That's the least. If you haven't even been able to handle money, that's the least you can do. And you haven't been handling it that rightly. He says in verse 11, Well, who will commit to your trust true riches? And the answer is, no one would, and certainly God won't. So he watches the way we handle little things like money, something that everybody has some of. And if he can't trust you with unrighteous mammon, how will he trust you with the treasures of heaven? And then he says in verse 12, And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, remember the steward? He squandered somebody else's goods. If you can't be faithful in using someone else's goods, who will give you what is your own? Who will give you what is your own? Now just think about that. If you can't be trusted in, in using someone else's money, who's going to give you money of your own to use? 
Why would God entrust you with more, more, and more, and more? Because if you can't, if you can't be trusted using someone else's, how can you be entrusted with your own money? And that's a good question, by the way. See, if you don't take care of someone else's property, you're not going to take care of your property. And this is, these are just proverbs that Jesus has given, but he has an eternal message. And then in verse 13 he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and he'll love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And now he calls this money, he calls it mammon, and he says that you cannot serve God and mammon, and he, turns, he personalizes mammon, and he turns it into an idol. He says, you, will, you can't serve God and mammon at the same time. So if you say you're a Christian, and yet you're serving money, well, then you're not a Christian, because you can't do that. We say, well, I do it. No, you don't. See? Now, the interesting thing is, at first, money serves you. This is the amazing thing about money. You use money for your own benefit. When you do that, you're in trouble. Not when you use it for your own benefit. When you use it all for your own benefit, you're in trouble. <laughs> At first, money serves you. It gets you what you want. But in time, you end up serving it. And you become a slave to money. And you think, how can I get more? How can I get more? I need this. How can I get more? And guess what you start doing? You start going after more. And you, it ends up that it controls your life. And that's what Jesus says happens to people. And that's very unfortunate. So what we should be doing is we should be treating money as a tool that's used for the kingdom. And that's the bottom line that Jesus is teaching here. Now look what it says in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they mocked him. They derided Jesus. See, they didn't like this teaching. So if you don't like what's being said, you're sort of in the ballpark with the Pharisees. Now notice how he describes the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Greek word there is actually the word friends. Philo, you've heard Philadelphia. Friends, friendship. They were friends, look what says this. The Pharisees who were friends of money. Now we have a play on words from last week. Jesus said you should make friends with money. Guess what these people were? <coughs> friends of money. You see the difference? We're supposed to make friends with money for the kingdom's sake. These people were friends of money. They loved money. And so what happens is from this point on, from verse 14 on of chapter 16, we will never see the Pharisees ever treat Jesus nice again. Now, up until this time, some invite him into their house to eat. Never again. From this point on, Pharisees will always be enemies because this was the thing that separated them from Jesus, the money issue. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, look what it says then in verse 15. Verse 15. We have Jesus' response. He said to them, well, you know what? You are of those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You are those who just... You say, well, it's my money, and 
you know, I do this and I do that, and, and you justify yourself. You, you can explain it away, and it sounds pretty good to other people. But you can't fool God. You can give all your explanations, but God sees the heart. And guess what it's, he says it is at the end of that verse? Verse 15. He says, it's an abomination. So, is that a nice word, abomination? <laughs> when you spend the money the way you want to, and you tell your friends, so, well, we understand why you got that car, even though you didn't need it. I mean, you know, but we understand, and you know, and, uh, but we have 10,000 people here coming who don't have shoes, uh, but we understand, yeah, why, they should go out and get a job. We understand that. Well, you can justify yourself before other people, but you can't before God. He says it's an abomination. Now, that's not a nice word, because I know where people who do abominations go. And we're going to see a man who does abominations, and where he ends up going. So that's not good. It doesn't matter whether you say, I serve God, I serve God, I'm against homosexuality, I'm against this, I'm against that. And yet you serve money. Well, you can't serve money in God. You have to make a choice. So this is what Jesus is saying, and this gets the Pharisees very upset. Then Jesus says in verse 16, The law and the prophets were in the Moses. You know the law. See, uh, the Old Testament told the same thing about money that Jesus did. That's why Israel is never to have slaves. That's why Israel is always to forgive people their debts. A lot of what Israel is to do is to have to do with money. So uh, what Jesus is teaching isn't anything new. He says in verse 16, The law and the prophets were in the John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached. And it's, it's basically the same message. John came preaching the kingdom of God, and he said the prophets spoke of this day. And then Jesus says this. It's a very hard verse to translate. At the end of verse 16, he says, everyone is pressing into it. Everyone's trying to get into the kingdom. In Matthew, it says, the violent seek it by force. They're trying to get into it. They're not trying to get into the kingdom God's way. They're trying to get into the kingdom their own way. Uh, there were the zealots, and they thought they could just usher in the kingdom through violence. And, other, and the Pharisees have a way they think they can get into the kingdom. But God's way is different. You can't press your way into the kingdom, your way. You have to do it God's way or no way. And so Jesus says in verse 17, and it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. So you have to keep the, the, the scriptures. And then he gives an example. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now what he's doing, he's just simply giving an example. He said, what I'm teaching is not new. The law taught us about how to handle money. But you don't like it and you want to do it your way. You want to get to the kingdom your way. You want to interpret the scripture your way. It's wrong. And then he gives him an example. He says, for example, on divorce and marriage. He says, hey, you don't even listen to what God's word says about this. You, you change the interpretation. You have a more liberal position as the pastor was talking today, than what the scripture says. Uh, but the law doesn't fail. It's intact. And either you do it God's way or you don't do it anyway. And so what he's basically doing is he's saying that we need to follow God's prescription here regarding the kingdom.
Now you say, well, what if I uh, haven't been using my money the right way? Oh, maybe, what if I have been married and I've been divorced? I didn't do it God's way. Well, what you do is you break with the past. You realize it was a mistake, and guess what you do from now on? You reorient your life toward the kingdom. That's all you do. See? God forgives, and now we get on. But these people weren't willing to repent. They weren't willing to reorient their lives. So they took a stand against Jesus. Just so they would know the consequences, Jesus tells the parable, and that's where we're going to settle down right now. Now look at verse 19, and this is called what we call the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's one that you're familiar with, but you need to understand it in light of the money situation. Okay, because that's what Jesus is talking about. Making friends with money... So when the money fails, they will welcome you into the kingdom. You were here last week. You were very familiar with what I'm talking about. If you weren't, you're going to need to, to see that on, on the uh, Internet. Now look at the parable. Look at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now what Jesus is doing, he's telling a parable, a story. And he's making a contrast between two people. The first person is wealthy. He's called a rich man. Now we've seen wealthy people in this in Jesus teaching before we all know we know he's very wealthy because at the end of verse 20 it says that Lazarus was laid at his gate do you see that he lived in a gated community okay? now it wasn't like they are today but guess what most houses didn't have gates guess whose houses had gates rich people so he's going to make a contract we have a wealthy man okay and then the contrast, of course, is we have a beggar. And the beggar has nothing. That's why he's begging. He doesn't have anything. Okay. Now, notice, second of all, the issue of names. Notice the rich man is not given a name. Do you see that? He's just called a certain rich man. Now, he had a name in his community. Everybody knew his name in the community. But uh, he has no standing with God. Now, sometimes we call this rich man Dives. Anybody ever hear him called Dives before? Dr. Criswell used to, when he preaches, oh, Dives, what hell? Well, Dives is simply the Latin word, which means rich man. <laughs> That's why we call him Dives. Uh, so he has no, he's not, his name isn't given. But Lazarus' name is given. Now, Lazarus had no standing in the community. <laughs> if you would have said, who's that guy at the gate? He said, ah, it's a beggar. <clears throat> so like I said, I come to school every day, and I pass by a certain street, and there's a guy sitting out there, and he has a sign that says, we'll work for food or whatever. whatever. He doesn't have any lights, but he says he'll work for food. <laughs> now, uh, if somebody said to me, what's his name? I'd say, I don't know, it's some beggar. So he has no standing in, community, but God, in the community, but God knows his name. Now, the name Lazarus means the man whom God helps. 
Very interesting, isn't it? Next, I want you to notice their dress. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. The purple would be imported materials from either Egypt or India at that time. Very expensive. The dyes were very expensive. Uh, this is not a, a Hart Schaffner and Mark suit that you buy off the shelf for five or $600. This is a handmade suit. This is one that's $3,000 in today's market. So he is dressed very well. Look how the beggar is dressed. He's covered with swords. The rich man's covered with purple. The beggar is covered <coughs> with swords. He has no clothes. Now look at their eating habits. It says, the rich man fared, you know what a fare means? That's food. Fared sumptuously every day. He doesn't just have a breakfast and a lunch and a supper. He has a banquet. He has a feast fit for a king. If you ever watch the movies of the, the, the rich of the rich, you know, the life of the rich and the famous, you've seen those kinds of things. It's more than just eating, okay? It's eating sumptuously. But look at the beggar. He's starving. Look what it says in verse 21. He desired to be fed the crumbs which fell from the man's table. He didn't even get them. He just desired to get them. He had to fight the dogs for the crumbs. You see, dogs always came to the tables, and that's how dogs ate in Bible times. They eat crumbs off the table. Remember the, the woman who comes and wants Jesus to heal her, and he won't talk to this woman. She's a Gentile, and finally she says, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the table. <coughs> this man has to fight the dogs to get the crumbs off the rich man's table. This guy takes his crumbs. By the way, it's very interesting how they did things in Bible times. They didn't have napkins like we have. They used bread for napkins. They'd go like this. They'd wipe their face. That piece of bread became the napkin. And then they would get all the crumbs, and oftentimes they just toss it outside the gate. And so this man has to fight the dogs for the crumbs. So he's starving. Now, the fact that he fared sumptuously every day means that he had a lot of friends. We know that because we've talked about social status. He has friends that he invites to dinner, and this man, his only friends are the dogs. The only person, it's very interesting because if you look at the way the man thinks towards Lazarus, the rich man, he's indifferent toward Lazarus. He might not even realize he's out there outside the gate. He's oblivious to Lazarus. That's, that's not because he's an evil person. I want you to know this rich man is has a great standing in community in the community, and he's probably very religious. He probably goes to the synagogue. He is a Jewish man who is, quote, if you would ask him, uh, a godly Jew. That's how he would identify himself. In today's time, we'd say he would be an evangelical Christian. We will see that. That's how he identifies himself. If you said, what are you? He'd say, I am a godly person. So he's oblivious to the needs of Lazarus, probably not because he's evil. He just doesn't even see the guy. He doesn't, guy doesn't come across his radar. He's, he's blinded to him. He could care less. But very interestingly, it says the dogs 
were compassionate because they even licked the wounds of Lazarus. The dogs were more compassionate than the man. Can you imagine that? So that's the contrast that Jesus wants us to see. That's how he starts off the parable. Very interesting, isn't it? Now notice the next scene. The next scene takes place after death. Okay? The first three verses during this lifetime. Next scene starts at verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died and was buried. Period. This is the turning point in the parable. Because now we go from this life to the next life. And what happens, first of all, Lazarus is treated with honor and he's escorted. Can you believe this? He gets an escort, the red carpet treatment, by the angels. And they take him right there into the presence of Abraham's banquet hall, and he leans on the bosom of Abraham. He reclines and eats at Abraham's table. That would be the great messianic feast. The rich man's treated with honor in that he's given probably the best burial that's ever been given in that city. Spent twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, got a vault, got a mausoleum, you know, the whole works. But... Uh, and that's how, and burials, by the way, were very important in Bible times. Usually, if a person was a criminal and died, they just threw him out on the garbage heap. Uh, that's where Jesus would have ended up had a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, wouldn't have put him in the tomb, his own tomb. So, uh, burials were important. This man probably got the best burial that money could buy. But uh, guess what? His money was now ended, and it failed him, and it doesn't do him any good. Which is very important, because had the rich man, had the rich man made friends with his ungodly man when he died, Lazarus would have welcomed him. <laughs> had he been cognizant of Lazarus and helped this guy when he was alive, Lazarus would have welcomed him into his eternal reward. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 23. And being in torments in hell or in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. That's where the rich man went. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus reclining there. Lazarus in his bosom. So where does the rich man end up? He ends up in Hades. He ends up in uh, what's called in torments, which uh, was uh, referred to as the garbage dump. It's very interesting. He ends up in afterlife in a garbage dump. You know, remember the Gehenna, the garbage dump that was outside Jerusalem, where it was burning all the time and the fires never ceased. And, and you know what, what was thrown out there on that garbage dump? All the crumbs, all the junk, all the stuff that was useless. Stuff that no one could eat. If you had corn, you took the husk off, you know, you'd throw that out on the garbage dump and it burns up. This man in the afterlife ends up in the eternal garbage dump. And Lazarus is in the dump at Father Abraham's table. You know, it's uh, 
It's a reversal. He should have made friends with mammon. Now, it's very interesting. I want you to notice the posture of the rich man in Hades. It says, being in Hades, in verse 23, he did what with these eyes? He lifted them up. It used to be he sat up here, and Lazarus the beggar was down here, and Lazarus had to look up and beg, but now the tables are turned, and the rich man is having to look up, and he has to do the begging. Isn't that what it says? Yes, he looked up. Verse 23. And he cried out. Look what he does in verse 24. He cried out, Father Abraham, see, he thinks he's a believer. Father Abraham, remember when Jesus confronted the Pharisees in John 8, 44? They said, we have Abraham as our father, and he said, your father is what? The devil. The devil. Shows he's religious. How did I end up here? Went to synagogue every Saturday. Paid my tithes to the church. I gave 10%. Didn't do him any good to 10%. So he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Hey, that sounds like something that Lazarus would have said in his lifetime. He says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He is so fed off, he even just needs a drip of water on his tongue. As Lazarus starved in his lifetime, this man basically is starving in the next lifetime. <clears throat> now, it is very interesting. He calls Abraham father there. He will call Abraham father again down in verse 27. And this dialogue that we see between the rich man and Father Abraham is two parts. Verses 24, 25, and 26 is part one of the dialogue. And then verse 27 begins the second part of the dialogue. This dialogue talks about helping me. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Beginning in 27, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on my brothers who are still living back on earth. He has a concern about others. And we're going to see what this dialogue is all about. So Lazarus in his lifetime needed a drink. This man never gave him one. Now in the next lifetime, this man is not being satisfied. And he cries out for mercy. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, evil things. But now the tables are turned. He is comforted and you are tormented. Now, back in chapter 6, Jesus talks about this. He says that the religious people who aren't really seeking the kingdom in God's way receive all their comfort and their consolation in this lifetime. And that's what this rich man does. In this lifetime, everything's taken care of. But, and nothing's taken care of for Lazarus, but in the next lifetime, Lazarus is taken care of, and the rich man is not taken care of. Very interesting, isn't it? It says he saw Abraham and Lazarus afar off. Doesn't it say something like that? Where does it say that? Oh, at verse 23, doesn't it say that? Look, 
Lazarus and Abraham are far off. Now, guess what? When he sees them, they're eating. <laughs> they're drinking. They're having a ball. But he's separated from them. He's far off. See? And this is the thing. He's separated from Abraham. He's separated from Lazarus. In his lifetime, he was separated from Lazarus. He's also separated from Abraham. He didn't realize it. But had he been compassionate upon Lazarus in his lifetime, and they actually communicated and had a relationship, in this lifetime, they would have had a relationship in the next lifetime. Amen. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. Now remember what this is all about? How to use your money when you're alive so that you can make friends in the next lifetime and they'll welcome you in. So that's what Jesus is trying to say. So... Had he done something in the previous lifetime, he would have had a different result. But Abraham can't help him. Even if Abraham wanted to help him, he couldn't help him. See? Even if he wanted to, he couldn't help him. Notice what it says in verse 26. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. See? So that those who want to pass from here cannot nor can those from here from uh, nor from here to you cannot. And so even if Abraham wanted to help him, he couldn't because there's this great gulf fixed, and once you're dead, all that's over. There's no negotiating after that. So then in verse 27, we have part two. Then he said, the rich man said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. And notice he's concerned now with his brothers. Why? That he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So he says, would you at least send Lazarus back? I have concerns for my brothers. I don't want them here. I want them to escape this fate. Would you please at least send Lazarus back and somehow reach Abraham said to him in verse 29 they have what oh have you heard that before I think you did back down in verse what 16 the law and the prophets that's Moses and the prophets you see? remember that they didn't like Moses and the prophets because Moses and the prophets told them to do the same thing Jesus was telling them to do so what he does is he says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the Bible. Let them hear them. The writings of the scripture. All they have to do is read the Bible. They'll know what to do. Jesus isn't teaching something that contradicts the Bible. He and Moses are right in line about this thing. Tell them to read the Bible. They'll know what to do. <coughs> and look at this. The audacity. Look at this verse 30. The rich man said, No! Look at that. Abraham said, Read the Bible. Guess what he said? No, Father Abraham! <coughs> Look, no, Father Abraham. 
I don't like your plan. Look, I don't like that. They don't, not reading the Bible. That's not going to do them any good. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The Bible's not enough. Let's have a sign. Let's have a miracle. Uh, let's see a resurrection. By the way, do you think if Lazarus had gone back and was raised from the dead and preached to those brothers that they would have been convicted of their sin and converted? <laughs> no, they wouldn't have done that. Look what Abraham says in verse 31. But he said to him, it's amazing, isn't it? Now remember who he's writing to? Who's Jesus telling this story to? The Pharisees who love money. Notice how the rich man contradicts Father Abraham just like the Pharisees contradict Jesus. <coughs> Jesus says, this is what you need to do. And they said, no, <laughs> that's not what we're going to do. What is what you have to do? And Abraham says in verse 31, but he said to, the, to him, if, you, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. In other words, if they won't hear the word of God, then it's hopeless. And they're helpless. Resurrection won't convince anybody. About salvation. In fact, very interestingly, in chapter 11, or excuse me, a little, a little later in the Gospel of Luke, and also in John <laughs> chapter 11, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And you know what the Pharisees did as soon as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Said they wanted to kill him even more. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. And after Jesus himself was raised from the dead, did all the Pharisees just bend on their knees and say, Oh, you're Messiah, you're Messiah. No, they started persecuting the church. Tried to kill the apostles. So, the word of God's sufficient. And don't think that if you are given a sign, or a miracle, or see someone raised from the dead, that that will convince anybody. That won't convince anybody. You will not accept the word of God and things for you are hopeless and they're helpless. Now let me give you some lessons to take, take with you. This is pretty hard teaching, isn't it? <clears throat> let me give you some lessons. Okay, lesson number one. These will be lessons and warnings, I guess, for, I shouldn't say for you, I should say for all of us. Okay, lesson number one. Money will run out. Money will run out. Your money will run out. It will fail you, either because of a market failure or a death. Either way, your money will ultimately fail. You might buy a nice tombstone and things like that, but ultimately it'll do you no good. Okay? Second, wealth creates barriers for the wealthy. <coughs> wealth creates barriers for the wealthy. In the sense that they become blinded, there's this potential, this isn't 100%, but these are just principles. Okay? Because they become blinded to the need around them. Why? Because... They're oblivious. It's not because they're evil, it's just because they're oblivious. <laughs> so uh, it blinds us to the poverty that's around us. Okay? Number three. Good. 
Money will either be a tool that you can use for the kingdom, or it will eventually become an idol that you worship. Either you can control it, or it will eventually control you. Uh, I don't care if you're just middle class. You just want a little bit more. You just want a little bit more. Oh, I can use this. I go into people's houses all the time, and I look at the things that are in their houses. They're absolutely useless, but they like it, and they want it, and they need it. And the... You know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about even essentials. I'm just talking about stuff that's junk. Junk, yeah. It's the stuff that you have to dust all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who'd want that stuff? <laughs> and what you use your money for ends up controlling you. It takes your time. It just takes your attention. It just... And you'll either control it or it'll control you. Okay, next. Money accumulated and used for ourselves only is a mark that we're not saved. Money that's accumulated and used for ourselves only, we're only thinking about number one, is an indication that we're not saved. That's pretty scary. Okay, next. Our relationship to God, watch this. Our relationship to God can be observed by our relationship to other people, especially toward the poor. This man thought he had a relationship with God, but if we looked at his life, we saw he didn't have a relationship with Lazarus or any, any other poor. And so he had a false relationship. He had a false assurance. Our relationship with God can be observed, whether it's real or not, based on our relationship with others, especially the poor. Now, that's why when we ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? That's how we ask it. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, Jesus answered, yes. <laughs> you are your brother's keeper. Okay, next. Giving money to the poor doesn't save you. Giving money to the poor doesn't save you. But saved people give money to the poor. Giving money to the poor doesn't save you, but save people give money to the poor. If you want to know what repentance and faith looks like, that's what it looks like in real life terms. Okay? And then finally, while there is still time, while there is still time, we need to reevaluate our relationship to money. While there is still time, we need to reevaluate our relationship to money. <coughs> That's why the word quickly was used last week. Remember that? <laughs> quickly. What we need to do in reevaluating our relationship to money, we need to do it quickly. Why? Because money's going to eventually fail us. It'll be too late to do anything with the money. Or we're going to die and it'll be too late to do anything with the money. So, what we must do, we must do while there's still time. Okay, we'll pick up at uh, chapter 17 next week. And we're finished with money for a while. <laughs> okay, let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that each person in this room has sat through five chapters of Jesus' teaching regarding money and eating with people and meeting needs. And there's not one of us, absolutely not none of us in this room who have not been convicted by your words 
especially myself. So Lord, help me not to be a preacher of the word only and not a doer. Help me not to be a hypocrite, but help me to reevaluate my own relationship with money. And may each one of us do it, Lord, and just prove that we indeed are hearers and doers of the word. We are what we say we are. We're followers of Jesus, the one who had no place to lay his head. And uh, although he was rich, he became poor for our sake, that one day we could be rich toward you. So Lord, help us to follow that pattern in our own life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.